These are the facts. The world is in trouble, but we're going to straighten it out. We are going to build the wall, okay? Don't worry. America first. Together, we will make America great again. That's what I do. I fix things. We're going to straighten it out. Welcome to Unprecedented News Talk's weekly look at the goings-on in the Donald Trump White House. As the 45th President of the United States approaches 100 days in office, George has taken a little bit of a break, perhaps to prepare himself mentally for the fact, and he'll have to come back and debate it with me when he returns. But while he's away, the woolly liberal will play. This week we're speaking to Professor Thomas Nichols, who's an author of a new book, The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. We touched on a couple of issues that have plagued the Trump administration since they took office, including Russia's meddling in the election and the relationship between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. But we started with a discussion and an examination of how misinformation has spread so far and so wide in what really is the information age. So I'm glad to say we're joined on Unprecedented this week by Professor Tom Nichols, who's the Professor for National Security Affairs at US Naval War College and five-time Jeopardy champion. Uh, Professor Nichols, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You have written a, re- a book recently, uh, Death of Expertise, and I suppose a lot of this plays into what, what happened with the US election. How, in the information age, how is there so much willful or what seems to be willful ignorance? Well, it is willful ignorance. And uh, I let me just add, I don't represent the Naval War College here. It's my own views. Um, <clears throat> but it is willful ignorance. It is uh, people indulging their confirmation bias, that is the the tendency to only look up things and to accept information they already agree with um, and to basically create a whole information stream that that basically only reaffirms things they already think and that are comforting or uh, that make them feel better about themselves. And, you know, that's it, it did play out in the U.S. election. Uh, it plays out in Europe. Uh, it's been a problem, I think, throughout the developed world. Um, and it, and there's no doubt that it's willful, um, that people are surrounded by more information than ever before. And yet in many ways, they're really dumber than they've ever been before, not because they don't know things, but because the things they do know tend to be wrong and they tend to hold on to them quite strongly. You did say it played out in the, in the U S election. It certainly played out in the way that the media dealt or covered the U.S. election. There now seems to be, I suppose, a greater degree of bias than perhaps there ever has been before from both sides. And in an effort to avert that bias, there also seems to be a a kind of false equivalence of things. Do you think that's a a fair comment on on what we saw during the election? Well, I, I think it's wrong to tie it too tightly to this particular election, because what's really happened is that there's so much bandwidth and so many outlets available now that the U.S. media, and, and I think the, the European media as well, um, has segmented into kind of boutique outlets for every political view because there is so much room. There is so much availability of information. The fact that you and I are having this discussion on a podcast right now, something that 10 years ago or 15 years ago would have been unthinkable, um, means that people can now tailor their media intake to whatever it is they already want to believe. And the media being market driven and monetized, which is something that um, is relatively new in the United States. It used to be that news programs on the United States were money losers that were basically done as a public service. 
Um, but now that media and news have become marketized, each outlet can tailor its stream of information to whatever its viewers want to hear. So if you know if you're a conservative, you watch Fox News. If you're a liberal, you watch MSNBC. Um, if you have other, you know, if you have a kind of different spin, uh, you might want to watch CNN or um, you know CNBC or Fox Business or whatever it is. And it didn't used to be that way. The news had to ag- had to aggregate information to reach as many viewers across the spectrum as possible. So there is more spin, but that's partly just a result of the market. It really came out in the 2016 election, in part, I would argue, because the president, now the president, then candidate Trump, went to war with the media and tried to pick winners and losers. Um, To some extent, President Obama did this at the end of his term when he called out Fox News and, and argued that, you know, Fox News um, was pretty much a direct political opponent. Well, tr- Trump has now put that on steroids and has gone to, to war with pretty much the entire media. And so uh, everybody's taking sides, viewers, media outlets, reporters, the White House. Uh, it's it's really quite a mess. In terms of the low information voters, which I suppose is a, a term that's been thrown around a, an awful lot in the past, has this willful ignorance played a part in that and the fact that you can now, as you said, engross yourself in only the point of view that you want to hear, so everything that you believe is already confirmed? And do you think that maybe people have been shocked into not being low information voters anymore? Well, the, the problem um, is not so much low, although low information voters have always been a problem in the American system. Um, and the people who are most insulted by the term low information voters tend to be low information voters. Um, but we're seeing something even worse now, which is wrong information voters. It's not just people that don't know, you know, about where Barack Obama was born. It's that they actually think he was born in Africa. Um, it's not that what, it's not that they don't know things, it's that they know things that are wrong and they cling to them. And so, yeah, that's, that's a problem. Now, I don't know that the American left has really gotten any better at this because I find myself, I'm primarily a conservative, although I was, uh, part of the never Trump conservatives, uh, in, in my country. Um, but I, I think that the American left has fallen into similar kinds of echo chambers. And I find myself in arguments with people to my left who believe things that are just completely nuts. Um, you know, the, the Bernie voters and the people who, um, you know, believe that the president can be impeached simply because they didn't like the, the way the vote came out. And, and I, I think it would be better for people to be mobilized and to become higher information voters. But I think actually both groups of American voters are retreating into their own echo chambers because they are so traumatized by this election, either traumatized on the left or shocked at their own success on the right, because I think most of Trump's voters never expected him to win, that they don't want anything to disrupt the narratives that that they now live with. And that's, you know, really, we're we're not getting anywhere so far. And have voters, and I suppose both sides, left and right, lost that ability to have a conversation and have a debate where a middle ground can be reached in any way, shape or form because of this? Well, I I was very hopeful that this election was actually going to clear a space in the middle for, you know, center left and center right people to kind of come together to say, well, whatever our difference is, you know, that we were unhappy with Hillary Clinton. We were certainly unhappy with Donald Trump. There's a, there's space to form a kind of new political dynamic in the middle. I see some some of that happening, but 
mostly what I see is trench warfare becoming deeper on both sides now. That, the, that Americans now vote for their political parties almost as though we are a parliamentary system where we vote on party loyalty and we just dig in and stick with it, uh, which is unusual in the United States. People in my lifetime, and I'm not that old, um, you know, people would split their tickets. They would vote for a Democratic member of Congress and a Republican president, for example. Um, we're seeing less and less of that now where people are clustering into ideologically rigid groups where they simply support their team to the detriment of the other team. So I I don't know that that's happening. I think that the Trump victory shocked a lot of people into deciding to start talking with each other. But I don't think in the broad spectrum of American political debate, right and left are are having that conversation yet. I I wish they, personally speaking, I wish they would. Donald Trump claims to have an expertise in business, but is certainly not seen as any sort of expert in a political way. Do you think that his own ignorance of a lot of these matters played into the ignorance of a lot of the voters who didn't want to know or just assumed that, for example, the North Korea situation, healthcare, tax reform, that all of these things would be as easy as he said they were? Absolutely. He, He was a very comforting presence to a lot of not very politically literate people, because one one of the he ran against experts, and this is you know part of the gripe that I have in this book, which is actually not about Donald Trump, but about the way people re- relate to expertise in general. Ec- the job of experts is to tell you the truth, whether you want to hear it or not, and sometimes that makes us very unpopular people because we're the people that tell you that you know North Korea is not a simple situation, healthcare reform can't happen overnight, terrorism will probably never completely go away. Um, you know, we're the people who have to kind of work these problems out in all of their nuanced variations. And during campaigns, people don't want to hear about nuance. They want to hear what people like Donald Trump said, that who said things like, I will take care of you. I will fix it. I alone can fix it. I have a plan. I will make all this go away. And rather than encouraging people to think through these problems with him, um, it was an appeal to raw emotion. Now, I think Hillary Clinton um, for her part, made a similar mistake in basing her campaign very much on her own personality. I'll be the first woman. Um, you know, I'm a grandmother. I'm, you know, and when in fact, uh, you know, she actually was somebody who, whatever her other flaws, actually knows quite a bit about policy. But it was very clear in this election, people did not want to hear about policy. They didn't want to hear about complicated solutions. I'll just finish this part here by saying that, you know, people often referred to Barack Obama as professorial, and they didn't mean it as a compliment. Yeah, I think they referred also to Hillary as a bit of a policy wonk. And again, not uh, yes. as a compliment at all. Speaking, I suppose, of, of the election, you said in a recent appearance on Slate's The Gist podcast that you don't think it was that Putin was trying to back Trump and have Trump <clears throat> win. It was just that he simply hated Hillary Clinton. What, what's the, the background there for listeners who might not be familiar with it? Well, I think toward the end, um, when it looked like Trump actually had a shot at winning, Putin decided to to run with the horse that looked like it was going to cross that line. And I think uh, but I don't think that the Russians uh, at the uh, outside of the American election set out to help Donald Trump win, because I don't think they, just like anybody else in American politics, thought Donald Trump had a had a snowball's chance in hell. What they wanted to do was delegitimize what they assumed to be a future Clinton presidency. Uh, they they hate Bill Clinton for expanding NATO, and they hated Hillary Clinton for basically being uh, a potentially much tougher on Russia 
a Democrat than Donald Trump was going to be as a Republican. And they, they, the Russians and the Clintons have a long relationship, and it is one that is filled with hostility. And so when Clinton was, this is part of the problem that Clinton locked up the nomination two years too early. I mean, the, the primary with Bernie Sanders really was uh, just for show. I mean, there was no way the Democratic establishment was ever going to do anything but nominate Clinton. So the Russians knew this, and they knew that they were dealing with a future President Clinton. Now, Trump turned out to be a surprise at the end, but they were trying to scramble the election to taint the victory, to hurt uh, a future Clinton administration and to make it look sort of dirty and reprehensible and, uh, you know, basically no better than a Russian election. The fact that Trump won was just a kind of an added bonus for them. Although I would add just to, to finish that thought that, um, I think there may be some buyer's remorse on their part because Trump has turned out to be so unpredictable. The Russians are mafia guys. They like predictability. They like sure things. They don't like uh, instability. And Trump, I think, has turned out to be a lot more unstable than they gambled on. Well, that kind of touches on one, one of the questions I was going to get to. Uh, we've seen with uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson's visit there recently and Donald Trump saying as well just a week and a half ago that Russia-US relations are now at an all-time low. Is that for show or or is that realistic? Is that buyer's remorse very much there on their part because they were getting somebody who's doing things they actually didn't expect. Well, I, I think some of that's for show. I mean, I'm, I lived through the last 10 years of the Cold War, uh, and I can tell you that in you know, the early 1980s, Soviet-American relations were a lot lower than they are right now. I mean, Just we a slight, were, slightly lower, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were inches away from nuclear war for, for a good part of the early 1980s. So I think the Russians are doing a bit of bloviating here about how bad Russian-American relations are. Uh, and I think that you could even say that during the period uh, between 2013 and the invasion of Crimea and then the subsequent invasion of Ukraine, that um, the other part of Ukraine in eastern Ukraine, that Russian-American relations were even lower. So I, I think some of that's for show. On the other hand, I think the Russians are frustrated because they're not quite sure who's running the show over here. Um, I think they were probably a little surprised to see Michael Flynn booted out after three weeks. Uh, I think they would have preferred to deal with him. I think, you know, they've seen Trump go back and forth on Russia policy and China policy. And they, you know, again, think of them. I always think it's help tell people it's helpful to think of Putin as not a, you know, competent, all-encompassing Russian leader, but more like a Russian Tony Soprano. He's a mob boss. He, he, he wants to know who his friends and enemies are. And right now, I think there's a lot of uncertainty and instability in the Russian-American relationship. So some of it's for show. Some of it's a message to Washington to say, look, you know, you need to start working with us because we want we want the relationship you promised us during the campaign. You said Vladimir Putin wants to know who his friends and enemies are. You also mentioned uh, recently that Russia really doesn't have any friends in the international sphere. They have people who are more clients they have other right. i suppose dictators around the place is that because they don't have an ideology to offer anymore and realistically there would never be a a, a friendship between the united states and russia strangely enough once the cold war ended i was actually a very strong advocate for better u.s russian relations because i think that the united states and russia as two large circumpolar powers actually have quite a lot to cooperate on the united states canada and russia as well as Northern Europe, have a lot of common interests in the Atlantic and Pacific communities. And I, I think it's a shame uh, that Putin went down the road that he did. We also have common interests on things like terrorism. 
I mean, the, the Muslim world is no front friend of Russia any more than it is of the United States or Western Europe. Um, so I, I think that a chance for real friendship is there because I think the Russians have always had a kind of weird kind of fascination with the Americans. Um, I'm a Russia specialist by training and, and I've, uh, the Russians have always had a kind of strange fear and attraction relationship to Americans that I think uh, kind of mirrors how Americans feel about Russia, which is that we find it a fascinating place, but we've always been a, a bit afraid of them as well. Um, with that said, you know, there, there is no, um, I think Russia has no friends because Russia makes it very clear that Russia's first interest in the world is Russia. I mean, it's hard to be a hyper-nationalist regime and have friends elsewhere because, as you point out, they don't have an ideology. They don't have a common interest. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me how my Russian colleagues have never been quite fully able to grasp the relationship between, for example, the five eyes, you know, the English speaking intelligence world, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Great Britain. Um, they've never been under, able to understand how these English speaking countries are almost have a family like relationship among each other that they've never had with other countries. Well, in part, we're bound by culture, but we're also bound by ideas. And that that's just alien to most Russian regimes. Ironically, the Soviet Union had allies who believed in socialism and communism the way the Soviet Union did, uh, but they could only keep them by force after a certain amount of time. And so here we are, that the, you know, the Russian regime has made it very clear that they believe in the, Russia's interest over all interests in the world. Well, when you declare that, you know, you don't get a lot of people running to your side because you've always made it clear that everything's going to be about you. As a final question, as I suppose, and to, and to touch on the idea of, of international friendships and international alliances, you stated during the campaign there was a consistent and very well executed plan to drive a wedge between the United States and Europe. And that has mostly been focused by Russia on weakening NATO. Can you explain what the effects would be and what perhaps the, the next steps would be? And is part of that happening anyway because of the weakening of the institutions that Trump's administration will bring about? Well, the, the wedge between the United States and Europe predates the presidential campaign and it's traceable back to Snowden, the Snowden defection and WikiLeaks. Uh, where most of those leaks, although you know Snowden claimed to be an American patriot and only cared about U.S. civil liberties, interestingly, the leaks were almost entirely targeted, um, and as we now know through WikiLeaks as a wholly owned Russian subsidiary, uh, were targeted at uh, U.S. relations with NATO countries. So they were targeted at Spain and France and Germany. Uh, and so that that really does reflect a longstanding goal of, of um, the Kremlin, which goes back, you know, to before, almost before the Russian Revolution, to, divor to divorce the United States from Europe. Because without the United States and Europe, Russia is the major continental power. And what Russia would hope to gain from that is more advantageous trade, um, being able to reorient their military spending away from uh, worrying about having to deal with the United States and any of their territorial schemes, um, that be able to intimidate their neighbors into accepting a Russian sphere of influence, whether they liked it or not, uh, a free hand throughout the you know, southern Mediterranean and into the Middle East. And there's a lot that Russia gains from destroying NATO. And Putin, as a former Soviet guy, I mean, he's really a Soviet nostalgist more than anything else. 
the idea of destroying NATO and driving the United States back to the other side of the Atlantic is the oldest Soviet dream uh, there is from the Cold War. Now, whether that whether Trump is going to keep weakening those institutions is unclear because his early cabinet, uh, his early advisors, I should say, have been mostly flushed out of that administration and replaced with people that I would think of as very pro-NATO, very Atlanticist um, foreign policy leaders. Now, I'm hoping that that continues, and I hope that that reflects a change in the in the administration's policy. But there's no doubt that the Russians tried to do it. They continue to try and do it. They would reap huge gains from it, and uh, that it, that this is an ongoing propaganda war to try to uh, divorce the American and European communities from each other, which have had you know a long and close Atlantic relationship for over a century. Professor Tom Nichols, Professor for National Security Affairs at U.S. Naval War College and the author of Death of Expertise, thank you very much for joining us today on Unprecedented. Thank you very much. Thank you.